In Hamlet, Shakespeare tells us that theater holds a mirror up to nature. In a new book, Princeton professor Leonard Barkin tells us that when he reads Shakespeare, it holds a mirror up to Leonard Barkin. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Leonard Barkin is the class of 1943 university professor at Princeton University, where he teaches comparative literature, art history, English, and classics. That pedigree and his 50 years in the classroom give him a significant degree of latitude. So perhaps it's not a surprise then to learn that Professor Barkin's new book offers us copious amounts of detail about his own life and that he lays out all the ways in which those details correspond to his understanding of the plots and characters in Shakespeare. The book is called Reading Shakespeare, Reading Me. The Shakespeare scholar Stephen Greenblatt has called it, quote, a triumphant vindication of critical self-absorption, unquote. The premise is that every close reader of Shakespeare brings along his, her, or their own life experiences when reading. Professor Barkin takes this premise to the nth degree, analyzing 10 Shakespeare plays and showing where their parallels can be found in the intimate details of his parents' marriages and early lives, of his coming of age as a gay man, and of many of the deaths, loves, achievements, and disappointments that have made up his time on Earth. There's a lot to absorb, and Professor Barkin came into a studio recently to give us a good solid chunk of it all for this podcast, which we call who is it that can tell me who I am? Professor Leonard Barkin is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Is reading Shakespeare fundamentally different than reading any other author? And by that I mean, do we insert ourselves or, or bring our own experience to Shakespeare in a different way than with other texts? First of all, I'd say, of course, there are other texts that are as great and that I love as much. But if we're talking about someone who has accompanied me through my life, the range of experience, the range of character types, the range of language, the scope between uh, farce and tragedy, the breadth of all that I'm, is, I wouldn't say unique. I'm very fond of Dante. <laughs> uh, uh, um, but Shakespeare, for me as a reader, is my life. That is to say, my life is written out in those pages because I find him in particular speaks to my life. Uh, okay, that, that you, you've, um, you've led me to my next question, which is, is that why you write things like, and this is a quote, I read Shakespeare and I am Cleopatra. I am Mercutio. I am Othello at the same time as I am Iago. Or at the very least, I'm in a small room alone with them and they're speaking to me, to my life, to my sensibility, to my experience. That is why. But in a sense, I make that statement as a description of reading in general. And I think that's an important part of the book. We teach from grade school on, we teach reading of literature as a matter of learning how to do it. And it's very important to learn how to do it. And there's a lot of facets to learning how to do it. And you can do it wrong, it's possible. At the same time, the real act of reading the person who reads for pleasure, who reads a lot, is, is not being a technical reader. It's not saying, what did the author intend or mean here? The person is saying, what about my life? 
why do, why am I in love with Rosalind and uh, you know loathe Olivia or whatever it may be? Not what did in what in sixteen hundred what did they think about that? That's very advanced. But what about how does it make me feel? And that reading is encountering another voice as as you would encounter another person. Well, as you said, your connection to Shakespeare seems to go back to the very earliest times in your life. And one of the things you write about in the book that pertains to that is uh, your reading of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And you write that you you have a personal attachment to the changeling child in Midsummer because of the unusual circumstances concerning your mother when she was (laughs) pregnant with you. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but very intriguing. But first, remind us briefly who the changeling child is and, yes. and how it functions in Midsummer. If you look in the cast list of a Midsummer Night's Dream for the changeling child, you will be very disappointed. Uh, the changeling child does not appear in the play. But in a sense, he is the pivot of much of the action. It seems that the Queen of the Fairies, Titania, had a, a beloved companion who gave birth to a child and then died in childbirth. And she wanted uh, Titania to raise this changeling child as her own. Uh, And now Titania and Oberon, this sort of warring married couple, are fighting over the child. And uh, and Titania has him. And the whole, much of the action of the play depends on what Oberon does in order to get the changeling child loose from Titania and uh, into his hands. So it's always played as a very charming sort of a fairy story. But we, when we get closer to it, it's a little bit weird. I mean, what, why do they want this child? And it's even weirder because the way that uh, Oberon finally gets the child is by substituting not a childlike object, but a sexual object, a sort of absurd sexual object, that is to say, bottom, but, you know, through his various means, he makes Titania fall in love with Bottom and lose interest in the changeling child. Uh, so the first, the sort of creepy thing about all this, as I say in the book, is this change from a, from a maternal object to a sexual object. Um, and so the changeling child is at the center of everything, yet we never meet him, we never see him. And in fact, the term changeling child is itself uh, historically a very important term, but usually doesn't apply to this kind of situation. It's a child stolen, uh, uh, that the fairies steal your beautiful baby and replace it with an identical looking baby who's actually a demon. And this is what, you know, parents, when their children misbehaved, <laughs> said, you're a changeling. You're not really my child. You're the, I, you're the, the simulacrum that the fairies left. Um, right, it's an alternative to to threatening the boogeyman or something. But connect right. those but it, dots for us. Then, how does your personal <laughs> connection and your personal history uh, illuminate the text, or or vice versa? Uh, well, uh, I, I'm glad you choose uh, this instance. It's certainly one of the sort of the trickier instances in the book. And I I never mean to say that my life is exactly like Shakespeare. It isn't. Uh, what I mean always to say is this is how one, how my reading of Shakespeare broadens from my own experience. It was the case uh, that I was born at the beginning of October, and my mother discovered she was pregnant uh, at the end of July. And I always say at that point, you do the math. Um, In other words, she didn't know she was having a baby uh, for most of her pregnancy. That's six months or so. Correct. (laughs) 
<laughs> this okay. is all true. <laughs> I didn't make it up. <laughs> the, the, one of the most important things about this for the purpose of my book is that this story was told all the time, over and over, to strangers, to, to guests, to relatives, uh, in my presence. And that's really where we get to the, uh, to the changeling child aspect. And in order to for a child to hear that story, it opens up vast caverns of mysterious matter as to where do babies come from, what's pregnancy, uh, how long does it take, why is six months not, you know, uh, to be discounted. So I, my coming into the world was a family joke. Uh, and what was contained in that joke was all the mysteries of where do babies come from. Uh, which were being, which all the grown-ups sort of seemed to know. <laughs> uh, but I was sort of scanning that, all of this for information that, you know, that everyone knew. And uh, it, it made me feel, that's part of it. And the other part of it is it made me feel maybe I, was I or wasn't I this woman's child? Uh, and that's where the changeling comes in. But how, how, does it, how does it then give you an end to an interpretation of Midsummer Night's Dream? Well, I think it in no in no very direct way. I should admit right away. Uh, okay. I think what this means is that uh, one of the ways to, you have to understand. That's why I started by talking about the way this changeling child isn't, as it were, the normal changeling child of that culture. It gives you a sense that there's a mystery about the way in which babies come into the world, and in the same way that the changeling child turns out to be a sort of strangely mutable token in the plot of A, of a Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, hmm. And I think throughout the book, my personal in, uh, what can I say, intersections with Shakespeare brings me to some understanding. Well, let me ask you this then. If you hadn't had this particular history with the circumstances of your birth, would your reading of Midsummer have likely had a, a different focus? Uh, my answer it's all about the word reading there. And the word reading is in my title, and it's very important. One way to define reading, the professional way, as a, and I'm a professor of literature, is to say a reading is an interpretation, translating the experience of a literary text into a, uh, some kind of discursive piece of prose thinking. So that kind of reading, not so much. I mean, I, I do arrive at interpretations in that sense. But reading in the sense that reading is absorption, uh, reading is living in the life of the text, I, I would have missed out, actually, on a lot of the mystery of The Changeling Child uh, if it hadn't occurred to me at some point that the experience of The Changeling Child in the play, uh, this sort of mysterious, wavering, uncertain He's there, but he's not there. He's the pivot of all the action, but we never see him. I think sort of glomming on to that as a central fact of the play has something to do with, with my uh, long pondering of the, you know, the relativities of mothers and sons. Well, let's look at a different example. Um, and I particularly like your writing about Merchant of Venice and your focus is on Antonio. And what you call right. the gayest moment in Shakespeare, when Antonio <laughs> confesses that he's depressed. So right. tell us more about that moment and, and your interpretation of Antonio. Well, that gives you, this is the case where um, 
gives, I, I'm now you know, able to give you what you wanted in the Midsummer stream. <laughs> that is to say, that was real experience for me, no doubt about it. Um, uh, I'm going to get very personal, but so does the book. I mean, actually, the book gets more personal than I'm about to be now, but I'm, I'm open to it. I'm a gay man who has been an out gay man for many decades and did not meet his life partner until uh, just after my 55th birthday, now uh, more than 20 years ago, just so you can do the math on my age. For someone like me, but of course not only me, a, a lonely gay man, uh, the opening 10 minutes of a, mis of a Merchant of Venice, are, they, they can only mean one thing. Antonio says he's sad, and his kind of hanger-on friends you know, say, well, of course you're sad. You have all these ships. They're traveling all over the world. You're worried about ships. Uh, and he says, no, it's not that. I've diversified, as we would say. There, you know, <laughs> I have ships in all different oceans and so on. And then they say, well, then you're in love. And he says, fie, and sort of drops the subject. And the next thing that happens is that Bassanio and other people come on, and all the friends who have been there so far say, oh, now that Bassanio's here, uh, you know, we'll leave you two, two together. I don't think you have to be a gay man <laughs> to see uh, to see what's going on. Uh, I mean, even without the hindsight of the fact that Bassanio is there to borrow money and so he can, you know, woo Portia, you know, not not very useful uh, to Antonio, uh, though Antonio bank bankrolls it. But I think the pathos of that, uh, and of course, also the, the sort of famous uh, line from Oscar Wilde's lover's poem, you know, the love that dare not speak its name. Mm. This is, forget Oscar Wilde, <laughs> who certainly spoke its name. Um, this is the love that dare not speak its name, and it dare not speak its name in the play, except again from offstage, when two sort of choric characters who tell us the things we need to know, when they describe the parking of Antonio and Bassanio, uh, as tearful and affectionate. And when Antonio then, again, offstage, we hear his letter. Um, so there, there these, the bond between Antonio and Bassanio is insisted upon throughout the play, but never spoken. It's never allowed to be spoken directly. Do you remember the first time you read the play? <sighs> no. Um, so when, when did you come to this reading? When did it hit you with that force? Um, Oh, very, at a very young age. I mean, uh, probably by the time I was in college. By the earliest, I would have been reading it in the uh, late 50s, maybe. It was certainly kosher <laughs> to say that it was something a little sexually uh, fluid about the Shakespearean imagination. Well, I was going to say, absolutely, you're not alone in, in taking this no. uh, this uh, angle since, exactly, since about the 50s, scholars have interpreted right. the character, right. some of them, as gay, and others have said, right. no, the platonic love between men was the highest ideal of love. Right. It, it I, Trump I wrote a book about that. that exactly, <laughs> exactly. But I'm thinking back to um, Al Pacino's Merchant of Venice, in which he leans that way. And also, I think uh, the actor Joseph Fiennes took right. that approach in A Merchant of Venice right. in the in the 2000. Right. And I'm guessing you know the poem by Jason Schneiderman, The Sadness of Antonio. I don't know it, actually. Uh, oh, my goodness. Then I'm going to send it to you because it is, it is exactly about that. And right. there's a wonderful part of the poem where he imagines with his assistant, who is also gay, they teach... Uh, they're teaching Shakespeare. He imagines a whole 
creating a whole 1990s version of Merchant of Venice that could open with Antonio right. breaking the silence and conclude with an act-up demonstration. <laughs> but, <Right. laughs> uh, yeah, but I, as as we were saying, you're, you're, you're not alone in this, not to minimize right. your own personal experience. Well, getting back to what you were speaking about earlier and this, this deep emotional connection to, to the play... What does it illuminate in your experience? Or what did your experience illuminate in Merchant? Well, in this um, resonance? I think it's, I guess it's, uh, e- I'll start with, and because it's easier, what it, it means very early in my life, uh, figuring out who I was and what that meant about my connections with other people and how I might treat them or serve them or, or support them. Uh, that the play, the way I read it, was very revealing about that. As far as the revelation in the other direction, it's in a sense built in now. Uh, it, it enables me, I'm not the only one to see these things in the play, obviously, but it enables me to feel the richness of the tension in the play around Antonio versus Portia, which mm. you know is not in any straightforward sense uh, what the play tells. I mean, gold, silver, and lead are set up in opposition to each other. Um, uh, Antonio and Portia, you know, are seem to be on different planes in some sense. But from that opening moment, especially when all the friends say, you know, we've ex- established that he's not sad about his ships and uh, that he's seems to be avoiding the question of whether he's in love or whatever, certainly does not invite a discussion of it. And then immediately after, when the other friends come on, they say, oops, I see Bassanio's here. We'll, we can leave now and leave you two to yourselves. I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> Why would you do that? Why are they doing that? Uh, based on what are they doing that? Perfectly clear to me. So when you teach this play, do you reveal this kind of personal history or do you encourage your students to? Oh, I, I, uh, I reveal it and I do not. Well, <laughs> um, I reveal it certainly. I mean, I don't make a big deal out of it, but I make, uh, I don't avoid it, let's put it that way. Encouraging my students, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I'm, I'm now teaching uh, a graduate seminar, which is designed to involve, I mean, the first half of it is really a quite traditional uh, cultural study of the development of the first person, of uh, uh, I as a, the, the right of an author to speak for in the first person. Uh, and the second half of it is getting the students to do first-person readings of whatever uh, I specialize in the early modern period, the Renaissance, so I hope they'll choose things from sort of before 1700, um, but getting students to uh, write what is now, I actually had no idea of this, but suddenly it's everywhere and it's called autocriticism. Mm. Uh, <laughs> nothing to do with, you know, your Oldsmobiles. Um it's a joke now that every time I open PMLA or one of these, <laughs> there's something you know about where the the critic is out on the page in his or her own uh, life. It makes me feel a little, you know, cheap. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think it's uh, the zeitgeist. <laughs> I think you're very with it, actually. <laughs> uh, well, I, I've never you're been an with influencer. It before, so I'm glad. A Shakespeare influencer. I'm an influencer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I certainly have never. <laughs> ask students to say, <laughs> are they gay <laughs> when we read The Merchant of Venice? Um, 
Uh, well, you're really you are anticipating my next question, which is that uh, is this book more of an exercise in writing a memoir or autobiography, or is it an exercise in modeling a way of reading Shakespeare? Yes, is the answer to that alternative. It's relentlessly trying to do both of those things. And sometimes I would explain from the bottom up that connection, and sometimes I would not. And sometimes they, I mean, the the interweaving of Richard II and RuPaul's Drag Race at the end. Uh, <laughs> Which I particularly appreciate it. <laughs> it's obviously funny, I hope so. Yeah. But it's, for me, very fundamental. Well, it's a tightrope walk, and you, I, I see you walking it chapter to chapter because your emphasis really varies. And for instance, your, your King Lear chapter is more about you than it is about King Lear, but then you go to the Midsummer chapter, chapter and it's more about yeah. Midsummer than it is about you. Yeah. And it made me wonder what determines the balance for you. Is, is it just a chance of your own history, or do you see patterns in what plays you relate to more personally? Well, all of these plays, you know, I do relate to personally, uh, or they wouldn't be in the book. But I think it's what I felt the play demanded and what I, what kind of relation I had over the years to the play. Um, you know, I, the occasion of talking about A Midsummer Night's Dream is the occasion of talking about my own intellectual development. And that may not be as uh, exciting as being gay or whatever, but it's part of my life. And um, it's very important to this book uh, to say, how is it that I wrote a book about metamorphosis and that I got interested in the Warburg scholars and uh, in, in that kind of cultural uh, study of the early modern period, which mixed philosophy, literature, and the visual arts. Those sorts of questions are less, you know, gutsy, uh, less kind of tearing my soul. I mean, the King Lear chapter tears not only my soul, but my family's. But I, I wanted very much, I mean, if I'm doing reading Shakespeare, reading me, a part of it is, is reading Shakespeare. I mean, to say part of it is, how did I come to be a person who reads Shakespeare? Not just what did I read when I saw him? I, I know that the, uh, already from people's reactions, and people have been very, very nice. I mean, they've been lovely about the book. But it, I know that the sort of I'm gay, I'm Jewish, I'm this, you know, that those are going to be more exciting things in some ways than I'm a scholar, I'm a, a, you know, a self-made art historian. But I wanted there to be all of those because all of it uh, can be mapped on my relationship to Shakespeare. Well, in terms of reading, I, a little bit of a devil's advocate question. Is there a downside of inserting our personal lives or circumstances too much into what we read. And to give you an example, I often read Hamlet or Macbeth, and I identify so much with the female characters, or I identify with them as a mother and a wife, that I overlooked the, the subtleties of meanings in inherent for princes or kings. Well, that's fascinating, because, of course, <clears throat> in both of those plays, uh, I do the same thing that <laughs> you do. That is to say, I'm complete. You know, they appear uh, in the chapter on mothers and sons, yeah. and um, I'm thinking now, especially of well, of Hamlet and Macbeth. You know, I insist on following Gertrude through the play, and eventually saying, exposing the kind of little vignettes of my mother, and saying the way Hamlet treats treats his mother in in the closet scene results. I say I think he's despicable. 
Um, uh, Which is nothing that's not your, any your of my professors in college ever said to me <laughs> about. I know that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I frame it carefully around that particular matter. And after a whole chapter about mothers and sons and the varieties, uh, but it makes no expletive deleted sense what he says to her in that scene right. uh, about her crime. That's just, and I think the reading of that play from the 18th century on has read it as though every as though everything Hamlet says, so we should believe everything Hamlet says, even you know, even if we wish he didn't say it or so on, that we should not judge it uh, negatively. What I hear well, you saying is, thank God we bring ourselves to to as a exactly, corrective exactly, to the text exactly. or exactly. to the history. But of, of course, the we text. can. I mean, we all, you know, in one. Uh, I say at the beginning that I I began teaching in uh, nineteen seventy Southern California. <clears throat> And uh, to get students to uh, say anything other than what it meant in their lives, never mind that it was written in the 16th century. That was uh, that was a bridge too far to expect them to take. But just to see it as you know they weren't in the play was very difficult. So of course you can do that too much, and that is step one of reading. But my view is it never really leaves us anyway. Uh, and I want us to admit to it and say, not just I, I am, uh, you know, I'm in the play, but to judge the characters by that and also to say, well, this is how, this is not how I am. I'm worried that I treated my mother a little bit as badly, <laughs> you know, and I have Hamlet berating Gertrude for her, uh, I mean, really unspeakable things he says to her as a way of, you know, saying, I should be thinking about myself at that point. Whether or not that is a reading of the play, whatever we mean by reading, it's certainly part of the legitimizing the experience of great literature is to say, uh, am I like that? Do I want to be like that? You know, at this point, it is hard for me to imagine reading not as an exercise in empathy, and not bringing my life experience to what I read, but I did study literature in the in the 1980s, and I got a good dose of deconstructionist literary theory, which doesn't ascribe to all of that. Um, and it right. made me wonder what kind of reaction you have gotten from people who approach reading texts differently from you, or reading Shakespeare differently from you. <laughs> they so far they've been kept from me mostly. Uh, <laughs> And long may that wave. Um, I, I think one thing to say about it is that it's a little out of fashion now. I don't, I'm, I'm not, you know, beating my breast with joy about that. Deconstruction was uh, very important to me and to a lot of people because it opened up the possibilities of what reading was. And that's what I'm mostly interested in. Because it was a theory on the basis of which uh, interpretation became freer while still connected to a certain sort of theoretical logic. And that logic had to do with language and the way it works and so on. That's not exactly what my, where I get my permission to do it. But it was the place that it gave us all permission. Um, and so that, uh, you know, then it, 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 deconstruction in particular, emerged as something linguistic and certain ways kind of puritanical and uh, ex very excluding. And uh, so, you know, I don't exactly, I'm not 
you know, more in mourning for its receding from the center of the scene. But it's uh, it, this is what we share is a sense that there is in the experience of uh, writing and the experience of reading, there's more than one way to understand the transaction. This is on a very different tack, but reading your book, I wondered whether you had a list of of moments in your life that you wanted to write about and you realized they corresponded to your understanding of the plays or they intersected with the plays or whether you started with a list of plays and moments in the plays that you wanted to write about that provoked these memories. That's the great, great question. I mean, the short answer is, no, mostly I started with the plays. This is a book about Shakespeare. He comes first in the title, and he should come first. And it's really, for me, I went into these plays, and some of them, like Lear and The Merchant of Venice, sort of that that process kind of built itself. But I always started saying, what's in the play? Uh, and, and, you know, what, is, what has affected me the most? What, 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 is, what have I connected to most in the play? And, you know, I mean, I can go through them all. And sometimes, you know, there, that link is that stronger or not. Sometimes it's just narrative. Uh, you know, seeing Richard II and, you know, going back every night of the week uh, to see it again. And obviously all the mothers and sons uh, queer, I mean, all of those things, uh, you know, there was some, some of those things are, you know, I already said, you know, uh, Antonio looks very familiar to me. And I, you know, I took some of the plays that mean the most to me and said, you know, essentially in the prep, I said, well, why do they mean the most to me? Sometimes that was obvious. Uh, I'm a homosexual. <laughs> you know, uh, sometimes it wasn't obvious. You know, I talk to a lot of writers, and uh, they talk about being surprised by the time they get to the end of the of the whole process, how it's changed them or, or surprised them. Has this experience of writing about your life in connection with Shakespeare significantly changed the way you interpret any play or any of your any of your personal background, your history? Uh, um. I think it's, you know, I'll start with the easy thing. Um, it certainly gives me a sense of uh, privilege. <laughs> I, sort of, I, I seize the privilege of saying I am a reader and therefore I am part of this transaction. And not only because I have a PhD and so forth and I've spent 50 years in the classroom, um, but anybody uh, that goes for any reader who, care, who reads carefully. So, you know, I have the right to to read my life and my and the text at the same time. Um, as far as the what one might call the movement in the opposite direction, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I um, actually your question maybe not audible in this form makes me sort of emotional. Um, uh, I think I you know I'm uh, in my seventies, and uh, I think it's part of uh, you know a view back on one's own life with some of the same questions that a professional like me raises when he uh, looks upon fictional lives written by great authors. And so I think it, certainly writing the book 
has required me to uh, to do a self-analysis. I mean, let us say I come to a point where I say this moment feels very intense to me, and I have to say, well, why is that? Well, thank you so much for the close readings and for the generous conversation. I appreciate it. Wonderful questions. Thank you. Leonard Barkin is the Class of 1943 University Professor at Princeton University. He's the author of numerous books, including The Hungry Eye, Eating, Drinking, and the Culture of Europe from Rome to the Renaissance, Michelangelo, A Life on Paper, and Unearthing the Past, Archaeology and Aesthetics in the Making of Renaissance Culture. His latest book, Reading Shakespeare, Reading Me, was published by Fordham University Press in 2022. Our podcast, Who Is It That Can Tell Me Who I Am, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Josh Wilcox and Walter Nordquist at Brooklyn Podcasting Studio in New York. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.